So now, now I'm going to ask, uh, answer the real question that everyone's wondering. Why on earth are we learning uh, reading about Moses, the baby in a basket? Uh, what's this have to do with a manger and the Christmas season? So let's briefly pray. Lord, uh, it's great to give you praise in song. It's great to even uh, think about the uh, upcoming and the long-term uh, events in the life of our church community. Uh, but now, for this unrepeatable moment, for this uh, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be here on the 12th of December and to hear from your word, may we be present. May our hearts, minds um, be open uh, before you uh, to learn from your word. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if your Bibles are still open to Exodus 2, we'll be there uh, in just a moment. But as you're maybe finding Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, it's towards the beginning. Um, let me just say that it's the 12th of December, and just like every other December, we're not even halfway through, and I can't count how many times I've heard on the radio Mariah Carey, this woman, singing about how, out of all of the things that she could potentially want for Christmas, what she wants more than anything else is me. <laughs> all she wants for Christmas is me. I can't believe it. What are the odds? What are the odds? And so I've heard that multiplied dozens of times already. And again, we're only at the 12th of December. And then I've also heard many times on the radio uh, another song. I've heard Shane McGowan and I've heard the Pogues uh, singing about waking up in a drunk take, uh, fighting with his girlfriend, and acknowledging that their life was actually not how either of them was hoping that it would be. I could have been anyone, but here we are together. I would say that the latter, rather than the former Christmas song, gets to the heart of Advent season. You see, Advent is a time when the church from like centuries and millennia before us have observed a time of like articulated longing, of acknowledging that things aren't right in the world. And then also by implication, things aren't right in our interior life as well. And sitting with it and feeling the incongruity um, and so for Advent, Christians have traditionally just like accepted the existence of a tension that we're so used to living with, but we rarely say out loud. And this is that tension. Like we live in a universe that has been visited by its king. And so because of that, it's been infused with hope. And we live in eager longing and anticipation of the return of that promised ruler. But yet now presently, we assess ourselves, we assess the world, and we acknowledge it's not currently as, as it is or as it should be. And so preachers and Christian leaders 
for millennia have used these cold winter months as an annual reminder of the tension that we find ourselves. The king has already come, but the king has not yet come. Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. We're three quarters of the way through the story, but we're not there yet. He has already come, but yet he has not come to finally establish his kingdom. He has come in meekness and in humility and obscurity to establish an invisible kingdom in the hearts of women and men who follow. But he has not yet come in power and in glory and in majesty to rule and to reign. And that's why we sing, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. We've been expecting you, and we want you here now. Here's the first of three thoughts that I want us to consider, kind of bouncing off of or infused by Exodus 2. Firstly, it's this. God's people are in need of God's help. God's people are in need of God's help. And, and this is kind of the, the ancient story of the Israelites in Egypt. Uh, that is where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 2. And, you know, Audrey started from chapter 2, verse 1, obviously starting in the middle of a story. But if you go back a page or two, uh, you find that uh, the descendants of Abraham, that Joseph and his brothers initially were like invited to Egypt as honored guests. But over the generations that transpired, they went from honored guests to nuisances, to pests, to enslaved, forced laborers uh, in the nation of Egypt or the kingdom of Egypt. Chapter 1 speaks about this descent from valued co-participants to worthless laborers whom they're trying to weaken while keeping just strong enough to get their work done for them, but not strong enough to rise up against them. And so there is this, verse 11, um, taskmasters set over them to afflict on them heavy burdens. Uh, there is this twofold task of reducing the male children who were to be born, first by enlisting the midwives to help, secondly by enlisting the River Nile to snuff out baby boys. It's the ancient story of the Israelites in Egypt. Chapter 2 tells us the story of one such boy who was born, and by God's grace, and due to the ingenuity of his sister and the kindness of the daughter of Pharaoh, his life is spared. And then we go on, later on at the end of the book, it says, sorry, in a chapter, it says, during those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So they're groaning, and God's hearing. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But they have reason to groan. God's people are in need of God's help. 
And my friends, this is not just an ancient story of there and then. It also is the contemporary example of here and now. God's people need God's help. Our country and the world is trying to navigate through an incredibly tumultuous pandemic, trying to figure out the best way forward. And there's multiple competing visions of what is the best way forward. That's the world. Also, in this little room, there are so many dozens of personal tragedies and concerns that can just overwhelm each individual. And if we know all of them, it could break a heart. We're headed towards a time where there's going to be Christmas dinners, where there's people missing for the first time. Uh, we're going to head towards Christmas dinners where there's somebody, and maybe you're concerned, it might be their last. There's economic instability. We're trying to negotiate business with like this ever-shifting landscape. On top of that, we have our own internal fight for our mental health and emotional stability and one of like the longest, grueling experiences that I've ever been through. I assume that many of you, this is probably top five at least, right? Uh, we're living through this like collective trauma. And on top of that, there just is the reality that as followers of God, we're going to have a constant struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Truly, God's people are in need of God's help. And I just mentioned it, but here's the good news. Second thought. God's ears are open to our cries. We need his help, and his ears are open to these cries. So while enslaved and while marginalized and while they're being worked to death, look at chapter 1, verse 14, their lives were made bitter with hard service. These marginalized people actually had access to a power that is mightier than the collective dynasties of every pharaoh combined. They had the ear of God. And as they are sinking down, God is hearing and lifting up. Now guys, for some reason, I have like very few childhood memories. I'm sure, I'm sure the psychologists can explain why I don't remember like anything from my, I have, I have like four or five memories, core memories. Um, one of them is I was at a public swimming pool. I grew up in the US and we have outdoor pools. And I was outdoors in a, in a pool and uh, my, my dad was, was kind of wading in, W-A-D-I-N-G, wading, uh, no, not wading, what's the word? Where you're tre treading water. Anyway, guys, I only have like a few memories and I don't even remember this one. <laughs> so I walk out onto the diving board and my, my dad is out there like treading water waiting, waiting to catch me. And I, I just kind of misstepped and instead of jumping out towards him, I just kind of like, like fell off to, to the side. Oh yeah, let me just also say, I'm like four or five years old. I'm not like 16. <laughs> 
So I was like four or five years old, and I kind of like step off to the side and, and just like plummet under the water. And I just remember, I can, I can remember like it's just like going down and down. And I'm sure it lasted about two or three seconds, but like it is like so embedded in me, this feeling of just like going down and, and trying to flap and flap. And then my dad grabs me and then pulls me out. So Israel's cries went up in verse 23, and then Israel's God comes down and grabs them and begins this process of pulling them out. God's ears are open to their cries. But there's this period of waiting between chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, they cried out, and then God brought the answer to their prayer. There's, he hears the prayer in heaven's throne room, but it takes a while before he rescues his people from the brick factories of Egypt. And that waiting, what's that called? That's Advent. <laughs> that waiting between the prayer that's prayed, it's heard in heaven, and there's a gap between the time of deliverance. That is essentially what we're living in now as well. They longed, they waited, and during this time between their actual deliverance, I'm sure they fought to keep hope alive. And that's where we find ourselves in. This is why the Advent season is a good annual reminder to us, to remind us to, to orient ourselves in the map of time and space and history, in our tragedies, in our toil, in our uncertainty. That's why we're able to sing these like joyful Christmas songs that also have these very melancholy lyrics. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Or we sing about how we mourn as lonely exiles here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer commenting on this says that the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Well, guys, so essentially, I think what he's saying is you have to know that, that God's people are in need of God's help, and then simultaneously have the hope and the confidence that God's ears are open to his people's cries. And the third section is that God will send the deliverer. Even look at the chronology of how chapter 2 works. Uh, we have, rather, I guess even verse 1, we have their pain. And then number two, we have the answer to the prayer they might not even have prayed yet begins. And then at the end of that chapter, we have their prayers which are heard. So in the midst of the hardship and the toil and the grief and the groaning of the Israelites, God already had set in motion the answer to their prayers. And the way that he answers their prayers is by sending a baby. As we sang, born thy people to deliver, 
born to set thy people free. Now, that's not about Moses, but it kind of works. Born thy people to deliver, born to set thy people free. He sends their deliverer to them, and their deliverer is already in their midst, but there is a time of waiting before there's the unveiling of power and glory, signs and wonders that we are going to see in a couple chapters in Exodus. But right now, their deliverer is a little baby boy. And, and, and a vulnerable baby boy at that. Now, if anyone's ever, like, held a baby, you know, like, their heads all flop. You know, like, they're, they're very kind of fragile to begin with. But in light of the time and space that they're in, in light of Exodus chapter 1, beyond just the inbuilt fragility of a baby boy, he's born at the, right, at the wrong time in the wrong place because there is a fatwa against baby boys. Chapter 1 describes like the two stages of slow motion genocide that the Pharaoh has instituted against the enslaved Israelites. And I use that word deliberately because I've been reading and looking into um, like definitions of genocide. This is what I do. Um, <laughs> uh, no, because uh, even under current definition, like forced sterilization of an ethnic group counts as it's internationally recognized as a crime against humanity and as a slow motion genocide. Side note, this is happening to the Uyghurs in China now. It's internationally recognized that it's a crime against humanity and a human rights violation. And if that is recognized as genocidal, then of course what we see in chapter one, this deliberate infanticidal limiting of Hebrew live births is doubly so. So it's slow motion genocide and Moses is born right into it. So the deliverer of God's people is brought into a dangerous world. And I could see the connections happening. You guys, you guys know where this is going, right? You guys know that years later, the Bible says, when the fullness of time had come, the true and greater deliverer is brought into the world, and that world is just as dangerous. Uh, last week, we looked at the promise of the seed of the woman who's going to come and is going to do battle against the serpent. And although he would be wounded, he would crush the head of the serpent. And we looked at that, and that was titled The First Gospel. And, and this sermon, I guess, is called or could be called The First Deliverer. And so we have the first deliverer who comes as a baby in dangerous times, and the true and greater, the ultimate deliverer is brought. And instead of being welcomed in with a ticker tape parade, the current king of the Jews, a man by the name of Herod, upon hearing of a newborn king, launches into this maniacal and murderous campaign of not just genocide, but gendercide as one gender is wiped out in the little town of Bethlehem. Uh, Matthew's Gospels 
The beginning chapters speak about how all boys aged two and younger were killed. And then Mary and Joseph and their baby boy, they flee to escape. Ironically, they escape to Egypt. Interesting how things have changed. And this event is commemorated on the church calendar every year on December 29th, which is my birthday, so that's why I've noticed it. It's called the Feast of Holy Innocence, or the Slaughter of the Innocents. Uh, Jan Richardson has this to say about it. This grim feast day reminds us to acknowledge the shadow side of Christmas season. Amid our celebration of the Christ who has come as the light of the world, the presence of evil persists. To truly celebrate the birth of Christ means working against the forces that perpetuate suffering. And so the reminder of the darkness, rather than like catching us off guard, is actually a reminder of how he came. And more than that, who he came for. And what he calls us to be aware of and what he charges us and empowers us to work against. Another carol says, Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So where does the everlasting light shine? In the dark streets. And as we consider, for those of us that have kids upstairs, uh, you've got your memory verse. Maybe they're learning it. Maybe you're learning it too. The time comes when she will bear a son. Matthew 121, sorry. <laughs> Matthew 121 speaks about this. The angel gave this promise. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He comes in into the darkness, and out of that darkness grabs his people and saves us and brings us into his kingdom of light. So for us today, in a world that on the one hand feels a whole lot more comfortable. But on the other hand, it's probably full of just as much cruelty, but yet in this sophisticated way, we don't have to think about it as much because it's out of sight and out of mind. Uh, just a reminder that out of, we are, God's people are in need of God's help and his ears are open to our cries. And he has sent a deliverer and he is coming again. The New Testament gives a frequent assurance of his return. Even as Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended to heaven, and as the disciples are looking up there in Acts chapter 1, you know, two angels appear next to him and say, what are you looking at? Which is such an obvious question. But they're saying, don't you know that in the very same way as you saw him go, he is coming back. There's the promise of his return. Peter, who was there, writes later on and says, but don't overlook this fact, beloved, that the Lord, that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slow, slowness, but he's patient with you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. And then he goes on to describe that day of the Lord. And so here's what we've considered so far. And guys, I'm, I'm about done. This is like the second short sermon in a row. So like Christmas has like started so early for you guys. So Kian, you get ready. You want to think of another song? I don't know. <laughs> um, but so we, we've seen 
We've seen that God's people are in need of God's help back then and now. We've seen that God's ears are open to their cries and to ours, and that he sent the deliverer, and the deliverer is coming again. Uh, One person wrote this considering these two deliverers. Unlike Moses, this deliverer who is to come was not reluctant nor ill-equipped, but he was ready and willing to lay down his perfect life as a substitute for us, that we might be set free. In Exodus, the cries of God's people had already been answered by the cries of the baby, and the deliverance that followed would result in cries of agony all throughout Egypt. Centuries later, this deliverer would come once and for all, again starting with the cries of a baby, but followed this time by a single cry from the cross. This deliverer would not be spared. He would bear the full weight of the Father's wrath in our place. The blood of the true Passover lamb would be spilled out so that by it we might be delivered from death to life. Or in the words of the Christmas carol, from our fears and sins he would release us. Not just rest from the cruel enslaved labor in Egypt, but in order that we might find our rest in thee. So God's people are in need of God's help. Thankfully, God's ears are open to his people's cries, and he has sent the deliverer, and he will send him again. Lord, we're thankful for this reminder. Thank you for reorienting us Thank you for, in a world of Mariah Carey, that sometimes we have the truth of Shane McGowan to orient us to how things really, truly are sometimes. But Lord, it's more than just that. Thank you, Lord, that into the darkness, in the darkness, Lord, your everlasting light is shining. And so I do pray that with open and receptive um, hearts, with with um, with a heart that is quick to pour out our our heart in prayer to you, knowing that your ears are open to our cries. Uh, May we just find ourselves at the right place of your story. We're between your first coming and anticipating your second. Give us strength, give us endurance, give us the grit to persevere um, until that wonderful and longed for day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.